0: You're listening to The Legal Activist, where advocacy meets activism.
1: This is a podcast brought to you by the Social Activist Law Students Association at Dalhousie Schulich School
0: of Law. I'm Megan McKinnon. And I'm Katherine Stevenson. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second ever episode of The Legal Activist. I'm Megan McKinnon. And I'm Katherine Stevenson. To both our new and old listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, week, whenever you're listening to this. It's currently Valentine's week, uh, and that is kind of the theme, or it relates to the theme of our uh, episode today. Yeah, so what What exactly is our episode today, Megan? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about you, but I have had a dark few years. <laughs> yeah our few days months years it's there's a lot going on in the world Um, right now for some context it's currently february 16th yeah between covid and the fire and flood at the law school and other things that are going on in the nation's capital right now i am uh pretty pretty burnt out (laughs) yeah yeah definitely
1: same winter is always hard and february is always a difficult month for
0: school so definitely looking for a little bit of a pick-me-up For sure. The theme of today's episode is uh, is law and love, partly because it's Valentine's week, partly because this is a concept our distinguished guest is passionate about, and partly because I am ready to... (laughs) fall back in love with law school. (laughs) I
1: am definitely ready to fall back in love with law school and rekindle my love for law in general. So we're really excited to get to have this conversation with a very distinguished and experienced guest today, Professor Michelle Williams, who is a prof at our Schulich School of Law here
0: and very distinguished in the community. Yeah, she teaches criminal law, African, Nova Scotians, and the law. And she conducts research in those areas and other areas, including critical race theory, feminism, anti-racism, equity and inclusion in higher education, that's that's one topic, <laughs>
1: and human rights. So what she'll be talking about today is both her work with uh, African Nova Scotians and the law, and also how her passion and love and what drives her in her career in law, and that connects back to the overall theme of law and love, so... Let's get started.
0: All right, welcome to episode two, everyone. We are here with Michelle Williams. Hello. How are you?
2: I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: We're so
0: excited to have you.
2: Thank yeah. You.
1: If you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your position oh, at
2: Schulich School of sure, Law. Sure, sure. Uh, so, I'm a faculty member here at Schulich since uh, 2004. For the first part of that time, about 16 years, I uh, served as the Director of the Indigenous Blacks and Mi'kmaq Initiative, in addition to teaching. Yeah, it's just a a pleasure to do this work. I'm involved with a number of other organizations or committees, including co-chairing the uh, Dalhousie African Nova Scotian Strategy, also involved with the African Nova Scotian Decade for People of African Descent Coalition, among other things. Uh, So these are exciting times. I would say they
1: are. I actually did some pro bono
2: work with them
1: with DPAD last semester, so it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. you have a
2: sense of, of the <laughs> dynamic stuff that's happening there. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah.
1: for sure. So just to, I guess, launch into the first question, because mm-hmm. I know when the three of us were talking a little bit about earlier, you brought up the concept of law and love. So, uh, yeah, what is law and love? Well,
2: that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so glad it's, you asked. Uh, yes. I thought I, I may sort of uh, walk you through the steps of, of what – Brought me to the topic uh, just thinking about it. I did a convocation address for law school graduation in 2016. And as part of that in other classes, I have found this quote that I love by former Supreme Court Justice in the US, Thurgood Marshall, who was the first African and American judge on the Supreme Court of the United States. And he said, Do what is right and let the law catch up. And I sort of loved that idea. About maybe the law and justice not being exactly the same thing all the time, I think is certainly the history of, of African Nova Scotians and Indigenous Peoples Illustrates. And so then I started sort of thinking about that and what connects law to justice. And I think that's love, right? Mm-hmm. I think you, you get justice when you bring love into the picture and, and infuse law with that. And I'm not the first to say that. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King, certainly said a version of that. Another woman who I follow, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, said, love and justice cannot be separated. So I really like this revolutionary idea of law through love. And so that's how I came to it. In its simplest form, I think it's just about bringing love into the law, into your work, into uh, what drives you, into your relationships. And I mean love in the broadest sense not not necessarily a romantic love but just how we engage with other people and i think that's what leads to transformation overall
0: so is that transformative justice or embodied justice are those yeah the same thing can you explain a little bit more i will
2: give it a try um i've never heard of
0: that no yeah neither
2: neither one yeah So, and I will say at the beginning, I'm more student than expert or teacher (laughs) in answering this question, which is, I think, a, a great position to be in. My understanding of embodied justice is just thinking about the fact that we live through our bodies. I mean, that sounds obvious. I think sometimes at law school we get cut off. And, and the mind, body, spirit gets separated and we're encouraged to only be in our mind. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're going to bring your full self and and power to the work of justice, then you need to be connected fully. And we also experience oppressions through our body, right? If you mm-hmm. experience a microaggression in the day or you're uh, overwhelmed by the news in the evening it's not something that just goes in your head. It's right. something that, that affects you in your body. You know that in different ways as students, of course, too, um, right? Completely. Different times of the yeah. year and so on. And so this idea of embody justice, as I understand it, is really starting from the inside out and in doing that work. So centering in yourself, connecting fully, and then being better positioned to engage with others in this exercise of law and love, however you may conceive it in your own work.
0: That's really landing with me because I think we lose touch with that a lot. The law in law school is very, like, grind culture focused and very, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, in your mind. And I don't know. I feel like it it wears me down.
2: Yeah, um, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think, again, I don't know as much about transformative justice. I'm still a student in that area. Mm-hmm. But I guess I would loosely say about it, it's kind of taking that embodied justice and moving it out uh, more doing collective work with other people. So you sort of are centering yourself, working through whatever you need to work through as you move in the world and then connecting with other people and engaging further in justice work. And, As I understand transformative justice, too, it it really is uh, skeptical, if not entirely abandoning the notion of the carceral state, for example, in terms of addressing issues and looking at how can uh, collectivities actually, groups of people actually work toward addressing what we might call justice related issues without engaging the state mechanisms Mm -hmm. that have been violent in terms of their own operation over time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good point because so much of law school and the legal profession is almost trying to be that it's this objective thing or you're Mm -hmm. acting for the state or or law is is very logical and rigid Mm -hmm. when it when it isn't. So kind of how how can you still be an advocate and for people and what's your advice to be that zealous advocate while still remaining passionate and and human during all of it.
2: To refer to a tool and also a, an area of thought that precedes me again, uh, you know, I think critical race theory for me uh, provides a lot of answers to that question. Mm-hmm. It encourages us to look beyond those notions of. Uh, neutrality and objectivity to deconstruct those and in an historical and social context and understand how the law has actually been used to reproduce oppression more so uh, than perhaps it's help in many ways. So as a way of thinking about law, uh, I find that very helpful. The other thing, there's many sort of aspects to critical race theory that I, I think are, are helpful, but another, I think that's perhaps unique um, to critical race theory, maybe feminist theory as well, is that part of the principles involve you committing to change. Right. So it contemplates in yeah. terms of practice that part of understanding the theory and engaging with it is that you will make efforts to improve the law or to change its impact on people who are vulnerable. And so I love that that's woven directly into how we understand a legal theory and, mm-hmm. you know, in the first place. And so that also gives a nod to doing the work collectively. I think that even doing this podcast, right? You've come together, you share certainly some interest and passion to do this. And there's something that's energizing and creative about doing that work together and sharing it out to the people who might be listening to the podcast. And so I think that's a way that you can maintain and reinforce your Mm -hmm. own beliefs and work uh, by connecting it to others. Yeah, that's definitely my hope. For the, for the podcast,
1: yeah, hundred uh, percent put some put a human sort of passionate spin on
0: spin yeah. on law, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, because I yeah, I'm really loving that perspective. Inertia is a big problem mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in the law. Like if you ever suggest abandoning the carceral state, people look at you like you've just suggested the most <laughs> insane thing ever. <laughs> like sort of changing the way we we look at the law sort of yeah being critical like, right yeah uh, it doesn't have to be
2: this way how can we how can we change it how- that's right there's one thing that, um, and there's lots of folks who are who are doing this work. I think about uh, Dr. Rachel Zellers, who's at SMU, who's mm-hmm. involved with okay. the Third Eye Collective, which is look works through transformative justice approaches. But I also uh, my first year criminal law class try to try to have guests in all my classes. But um, for criminal law, I had uh, Emma, Emma Halpern, who's with the um, Elizabeth Fry Society uh, here in, in Halifax, and she was talking about decarceration or thinking about abolition and so on. And said, to your point, it may be that we may not see it in our lifetime or what have you, but if you don't operate with a lens that contemplates that as an outcome, yeah. right, then you may miss opportunities. To make changes. Yeah. A quote that I
0: like on this note is like, the court will never change with the weather of the day, but it will change with the climate of the era.
2: Oh, I like that. Yeah. Wow. i heard that I one I like before. that one yes. too. I know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <right? laughs> Learning yeah. new
1: things. That's, that's so okay. cool.
0: Yeah. So I at least hope, because every day I think about the law, I read about the law, I learn about the laws of evidence, and I'm like, this is just everything about this is is oppressive, mm-hmm. like everything, mm-hmm.
2: down to like the burden of proof. Well, the good <laughs> news, I think, is in part that the law is about people, you know, yeah. people constructed the oppressive laws, and people can work to dismantle them, not to suggest that it's easy, but it, it really is amazing uh, if you just sort of, put one foot in front of the other and, and walk toward where your spirit's taking you, what your vision is mm-hmm. for law in your life and your work, um, that you can you can make steps in that direction. And I'll just um, give one short example. Uh, so working with the ANS-DPAD coalition, we knew that there was a gap in terms of the justice organization uh, to work on behalf of African Nova Scotians. So we decided to dream and actually map entirely what we thought that should look like. Mm -hmm. We had no funding, (laughs) you know, we just said, but this is, we know this is what's needed. We see this as a vision. And so just continued to work with that and submitted it to government and uh, built aspects of it that that weren't actually funding, but but uh, sort of, um, as my colleague Robert Wright says, we sort of just spoke it into existence right. mm-hmm. and kept on that track on a volunteer basis and so on. And we were fortunate to be granted last summer funding to actually start it. And yeah. so feel very blessed in that, but recognizing that it's because people uh, got together saw a need just decided to work toward it yeah and suddenly the universe you know responds i guess because we're talking about you know um the DPad coalition
1: and then your interest in critical race theory and how did you kind of realize that that was your passion and then turn that into this law and love and turn that into your career
2: and your focus for your work in law I think there were a number of factors. Mm-hmm. You know, one is I come from generationally a people, a family, a community that has been always engaged in, in justice work. So so I think I've, I'm benefited from that uh, tradition. Certainly on a, on a more individual basis, I started in social work myself and mm-hmm. uh, come from a family of social workers and was doing a placement in the youth criminal justice system and realized pretty quickly how... Doing individual casework was not necessarily going to transform the system anytime soon. And so that's what led me into law itself, um, was thinking about how you could get greater tools to affect change. Uh, And when I went to law school, critical race theory was just on the horizon. I mean, it was relatively new. And uh, there was no course in it uh, yeah. at law school. And so I just, you know, did directed research on the issue. I read every article that had been published on critical race theory at that point, And it really spoke to me. And so I just, I think, tried to embody that practice throughout the rest of, of my career. And then the IBM initiative was one of the things that led me back home here, because I'd been away for, for 10 or more years. And again, that was a, a wonderful opportunity to combine supporting students, so so facilitating others to do this work, mm-hmm. as well as being able to address some of the issues from an institutional setting that, that can help shape minds, but also can engage in advocacy work and share resources with the community. And so there's been enough uh, opportunity that way that keeps me fueled in this area, being able to teach, think about it, I learn so much um, from students and, and colleagues, community members every day. And so I think also, I'm thankful for having a curiosity. I think I think hopefully law students who come in are driven in part because you just love to find out more about the world, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that sometimes it can keep you going when yeah. when things feel overwhelming. And it, I think that thirst for understanding is really critical in, in sort of moving your passions forward in law as well.
0: How do you how do you keep going when things seem insurmountably <laughs> Difficult, resistant to change.
2: Yeah, important questions uh, for social justice advocates to I, contemplate. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of things for me, you know, I, uh, again, was have been blessed with wonderful family and community. And so I have a very strong faith. Right. And at base, that's what it comes down to for me is a belief in God and Knowing that there's a, a force more powerful than I am that's mm-hmm. that's sort of on things and taking care of me and other things, so that in, is very very important um, in those moments especially. My mentor, who I studied with at uh, NYU, is Derek Bell Jr., who's sort of the the godfather of critical race theory and was a wonderful man. And and as you'll see from his writings, he has this approach that that sort of says, you know what racism and you could add other isms in there you know in his view were intransigent right that they were not going to disappear in our lifetime Mm -hmm. but you do the work anyway yeah you do the work because it's the right thing to do and this goes back Mm -hmm. to embodied justice it sits with you as as the right thing to do Mm -hmm. you want to share in moving that work forward and You may not get the gains that you hope today, tomorrow, or or who knows when. in some areas, who who knows when we'll see certain gains, but what else are you going to do? Yep. But make the most of the life that you have and try to, you know, bring your, your vision, your light, your gifts out into that force. (laughs) It's a force for good, right? I
0: think that's, um, that's really good advice because, like, at least for me, I find I'm often very outcome-oriented. You're right, doing things, like, for their own sake. Uh-huh. I don't need a reason. I don't need an end game.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's you know, you hear other mantras sort of like, it's about the uh, journey, not the outcome. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, they're the clichés line. because it's true, right? yeah, Because, I mean, you know, if in this moment, if in this podcast – we can actually sit and get something from talking to each other. Then that's a bit of magic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And you can find those moments every day, even if you wake up tomorrow and there's another horrendous outcome, like we've been seeing this last week or two, that you could have never imagined would happen in Canada. And yet we here we are. Um, But then you regroup and keep going and, and think about, okay, what's my role in maybe offering a counter narrative? to whatever this latest situation is, or even my, even if you're, you don't act on it because you probably don't have time as students to act on everything. You know, maybe your role is coming up with your own analysis about what's going on that yeah. you take with you.
0: Or there's power in just like living your life a certain way. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: And kind of keeping that inspiration.
1: Cause that's what I wanted to ask about now it seems that this inspiration it's important to kind of look internal and Mm -hmm. and not always be outcome oriented because I can be like that as well because as we all know law is slow moving sometimes and it takes a while so is it about coming from within and how how can people kind of find that working for the greater good or or is it really that curiosity that you think um is the key to keeping that inspiration going
2: I think it's all of those things actually. And and I I would wanna add that, you know, when I talk about going in, it's not in a egotistical, selfish way. It's it's about actually understanding where you might be harming people in your approaches, right? Because this idea of first you know harm in your justice work. And so being self-reflective in that way. You know, what could you do today, right? I think in order to stay centered and and embody justice, you need to find a way that you connect with whatever your spiritual connection is. You know, maybe it's nature. Maybe you just go out and and find that connection with the universe. Maybe it is uh, walking, running. Maybe it's a meditative practice or prayer. Or maybe you love to cook and that's how you share with somebody else and connect with somebody else. So I think it's at base... Finding that way that you feel centered. Mm -hmm. Then as you move it out, it is that curiosity, I think, is critical if you're a lawyer. And then also, again, working with others Mm -hmm. to move things forward. You know what? I work with a whole bunch of fantastic people across a whole range of areas on some pretty depressing issues sometimes. (laughs) But can I tell you the joy in the room when we're doing that work? Mm -hmm. Because we're in it together. We believe in it. And, like, laughing, just, just you know, enjoying that moment. And I think finding those times, and you can do this with your colleagues as students, you can do it with people you work in the community, uh, that's what's going to keep you going, you know, being able to laugh. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the other piece, because,
0: yeah, you can live your life sort of in accordance with your values, and mm-hmm. you can also... Surround yourself with people who share those values. Because mm-hmm. my my love thing, my that grounds me is, mm-hmm. is women. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah. I love women. Uh, I find when I'm surrounded by like minded women, that's mm-hmm. like my that's my greatest joy. Yeah. Like those are my the moments that move me forward against an oppressive
2: system. Yeah, yeah. Either and you're and, combining that power and sort of passion when you come together, reinforcing it, and then yeah. these things happen.
0: Definitely,
1: because I know that we share that probably all of us. I'm really interested in, in women's issues mm-hmm. and that advocacy work. Yes. So and I think it's definitely something interesting because maybe when we went into law school, you always assume that maybe it's the system works differently than it does. Yeah. I think it's yeah, it's figuring out how you can still have that passion and that key interest and, and work within it for a bit until you kind of get out into your career and then can maybe make some moves and End up where you want to be yes. at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's
2: what's important for it. I think that that there's a light in everybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the hardest work that you can do is to be open to seeing that in every moment, in every encounter. I think it's it's that dynamic that actually is teaching you about yourself if someone's triggering you yeah Mm -hmm. it's because there's something you haven't resolved in yourself but that's not to deny the incredibly oppressive role that patriarchy continues to play yeah right and so men can further that or men can be part of the work that's pushing back against it same as women yeah Wherever you find yourself along the system of oppression, right, on, on that continuum of oppressor to, to person being oppressed, then we all have privilege in different aspects of our lives in different ways. We're all hemmed in and constrained by the entire system, right? right? So the, the roles that men are sort of pushed into or they get reinforced for, you know, masculinity and so on, that's also restricting of them as a human yeah, yeah. being. And so I think it's moving forward, as difficult as that work is, it's, it's grappling with that whole spectrum of how we're all restrained by oppression.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I think that's another thing, like the sort of epistemology of law school is so adversarial. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's often framed as like us versus them. But it's like we're on the same side. Yeah, I and
1: I think also bringing it back to your interest in in African Nova Scotians, because we were talking about how if you're not a person of color, if you're not a woman, you mm-hmm. you come from these different different thoughts. Mm-hmm. And African Nova Scotian, I mean that's a that's a distinct people in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was I was just curious if you could talk a little bit of, more about that because that was something I was not uh, familiar with before law
2: school at all. Sure, sure. You know, African Nova Scotians are people who have been in this part of Mi'kma'ki since long before, you know, over hundred more years before Confederation, before Canada was a country. Mm-hmm. And yet, we are not yet legally recognized as such, as a distinct people. And so, you know, my passion at at this point is certainly to articulate that distinctiveness so that that people understand who we are as a people. In a way, you might think about an analogous way to the Acadian people or the Québécois or by virtue of us being uh, descendants of Black planters, Black loyalists, Black refugees, Maroons and other Black people who settled across 52 land-based Black communities here in Nova Scotia and who really helped to build the province, being here even before Canada was a country, Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing, of course, that that the Mi'kmaq people were here 10,000 years before that. Um, But in terms of our presence and contributions, Mm -hmm. I think it's critical that we're understood as a people. I think that whatever rationale there is for for example, including English and French and uh, First Nations peoples in the constitution, rightfully so, the same rationale exists for African Nova Scotians, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of however you measure who should be in the constitution in that way. It's critically important, I think, for me to make sure that that concept is brought into the law Mm -hmm both in terms of how we are defined, but also in terms of when African Nova Scotian issues arise, how they were dealt with by government and by courts. We've we've seen a a wonderful case in the decision of of, uh, R.V. Anderson uh, this summer in in terms of the implementation of race and cultural assessments in the criminal sentencing uh, context. We've seen some decisions now on land issues in relation to those early settled communities across Nova Scotia, and there's a lot more that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So uh, that work will extend long beyond my life. And it started long before me, but I, it's it's a real blessing to be able to be working on it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I was curious about that as well, because there is a lot more work to be done. And what, Absolutely. Are, the, yeah, mm-hmm. and what are the specific areas that you do your work in and that you're hoping next generations can kind of carry on that important work?
2: Yeah, well, some of the projects I'm working on now, one is, is again, this articulation of African Nova Scotians as a distinct people in law from both the international law dimension as well as domestic legal frameworks. Another uh, project that we've just launched with some funding from uh, Shirk, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, mm-hmm. is uh, looking at the development uh, with African Nova Scotians of a research and ethics framework to govern research that relates to African Nova Scotians. Mm-hmm. So we are a community of people who others have come in and studied and made decisions about. Yeah. And I think we need to sort of take back that power and and speak for ourselves as a people. You can think about, of course, Africville as one classic example of what the harm that can come from not listening to the people about what's best in their own interests in in terms of African Nova Scotian situations. And so those are a couple areas. But the study of African Nova Scotians and the law and and moving into even what we might think of as African Nova Scotian law itself, I think cuts across all areas. So there's so much work to be done in, in family child welfare issues, in health, and if you think about pretty much human rights generally right I mean it was really through the work of African Nova Scotians that the Human Rights Commission here in Nova Scotia was established and yet it has not met our needs and so I think we need to be re-envisioning human rights and how they are made real (laughs) in this province cuts across most areas of law that you could think of really yeah yeah
1: yeah definitely and even Africville, if you know, you want to talk a little bit more about that, because that's also a really distinct and important part of African Nova Scotians history Mm -hmm. that I don't think a lot of people know about and are aware about. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I'll just briefly mention Africville, and I think as I talk about Africville, I should call out names of other communities who are experiencing very much the same thing that happened to Africville as we speak. Yeah. So you think about uh, Shelburne, Birchtown uh, was the name of the, the African Nova Scotian community there. You think about Lincolnville, which is a smaller African Nova Scotian community that are still subject to extraordinary environmental racism. That has yet to be remedied. Mm-hmm. And so Africville, and I, I think our communities look to Africville as a warning as well, right? To say we do not want that to happen in our other African Nova Scotian communities. So basically, uh, Africville was an African Nova Scotian community near the what we know as the New Bridge here in Nova Scotia that suffered every type of oppression you can think of, including extraordinary environmental racism and not having services that ran into the community On the other hand, it was itself a very vibrant community. The church was the center of the community. People took care of one another. Incredible culture that came out of Africville and continues to this day. And so, again, it's people seeing only one side of Black people instead of understanding us as a people making contributions in our own right. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the long and the short of it was over the wishes of the people of Africville, the community was completely destroyed, essentially, and the people were moved out. Mm-hmm. And that has yet to be fully remedied. That will come someday. But, and, and the people of Africville have been working very hard on gaining uh, reparations in part for that. Mm-hmm. I think they have yet to be fully fulfilled. So I think if we look at places like Shelburne, where there's environmental racism as we speak, and even an issue that, that came on the radar this past week is, you know, they're shooting a movie down there. The, the African Nova Scotian people are not involved and are not benefiting, even though the movie is essentially about African Nova Scotian yeah. history or that piece of it. <laughs> and that's very problematic. And the same town council that has been extraordinarily oppressive to African Nova Scotians in that area is sort of, as I understand all over the news, touting this movie happening but not listening to the people, right? The African Nova Scotian people I feel in that like regard. Just that
0: anecdote is like a metaphor
2: yes, for how a yeah. country They're treats
0: still not, racial not, minorities and distinct cultures. They have not cleaned roots.
2: up, you know, the environmental racism in Shelburne. They still don't have access fully to the water that they need there, if you can imagine. And so there are many of those types of uh, situations happening as we speak in African Nova Scotian communities across the province. And we need to be seen and understood and responded to as a people Mm -hmm. and not try to have a divide and conquer or one-off or marginalize one community. And that's particularly dangerous in the rural areas where communities have just fewer numbers of people there. Yeah.
0: Do you see a future where African Nova Scotians are recognized in the federal constitution? Absolutely.
2: Whether we see it happen today Mm -hmm. or in our lifetime it will happen because it's right and just how did how did people make it into the constitution right in the first place right so you know the english and the french were were here at that point had sort of taken over indigenous peoples and so that's how the constitution first (laughs) arose right Mm -hmm. at the same time you think back even to the treaty of paris when they country, if you will, even though it wasn't country then, the land was was changing hands between the English and the French, one of the agreements was that you got to keep your enslaved Negroes. Mm -hmm. So that's not a great agreement for us, but what it says is we were here in those very moments that Mm -hmm. you are thinking about, even before Confederation, right? In the very moments that this political, this polity was formed that we now call Canada, It was important that people be able to keep their enslaved African people because we were clearly valuable in building what was going on here. So do we ever wanna keep that status? No. Do we deserve reparations for that? Absolutely. And as contributors to building this polity, we absolutely should be recognized in the constitution. And that will happen. I'm Mm -hmm. surprised
0: there aren't more conversations about that because this is kind of the first time it's occurred to me,
2: frankly. That's actually the beauty of this conversation. It's so important. Here's how it concretely matters, too. I mean, beyond it being the right thing. Yeah. It matters in terms of the reparations that are owed to African Nova Scotians. It matters in terms of how the law is interpreted. So one of the objections... In some of the earlier cases, I think two African Nova Scotians being able to have these impact of race and cultural assessments done on sentencing, uh, similar to what people know uh, in the Indigenous context as GLADU reports. You know, um, Indigenous Peoples' First Nations are recognized in the Constitution, and you're not. A- again, I have concerns about using the, the comparative approach in the first place, because, of course, Indigenous Peoples have their own constitutive history that is unique. But the fact of the matter is... It's those moments when the fact that we are not seen in the Constitution, in the documents, that people can sort of back off and say, okay, you don't need particular attention. But it's the same dynamic happening, which some people call purposeful neglect, right? We are purposely neglected to see you as people, literally, when we enslaved you as property. And now we are purposely neglecting to include you as rightful citizens um, in the law today
1: i never even thought of African Nova Scotians as their distinct people in such a foundational sense like that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm, I guess I was just curious a little bit more about, because you're talking about the environmental racism mm-hmm. that that um, communities have endured. So what, what are some of those racist acts that have occurred against African Nova Scotians and continue to occur
2: today that...
1: You know, we're working
2: on in law. Yeah, well, pick any slice of life, and yeah. you'll find them. Yeah, you know, education is its own topic uh, because we were we were forced into legal segregated schools for longer than we've had access to actual public schools and education. So that's a, a whole area in and of itself. I think, uh, and there have been various remedies sort of suggested for that, but but we have a lot of work to do still there. Another uh, that's very live is the issue of land allocation and uh, land titles. So showing that land was allocated, again, remembering it's Mi'kmaq land to begin with, right? But in terms of, of how allocations were done by the British, that land was allocated on a race basis, right? So there you have the structuring of wealth in this province from the beginning of settlement in the province. Mm -hmm. If you were white, you got way more land, generally speaking, if you were black, you got less. And so and the the land mostly that that African Nova Scotians were settled on was rocky land that you could not farm, you could not sustain your family with in a time when agriculture was king. But what Mm -hmm. did that set up? It set up the position where then African Nova Scotians had to continue to provide cheap labor to the white communities because they could not sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. So you there have a parallel of enslavement conditions. And remember, free African Nova Scotian people came to Nova Scotia alongside enslaved African. We had slavery in Nova Scotia for a hundred years here. Mm-hmm. And so What that created was a conflation of blackness with the status of being enslaved, whether or not you were legally free or not. And so that just continued over time. Segregation in every aspect of Nova Scotian life, Viola Desmond case that most people are familiar with is is sort of one of the well-known examples of that. So that brings us up to this point where we now have the land-based communities that we did sort of have, have eroded over time because of development, because of unscrupulous land deals that were made. And so we have our communities shrinking. So work is being done around land titles, a really creative approach called community land trusts that communities can use to hold property within their community and um, build the communities back up in terms of the, their uh, size geographically. And I think uh, we the other real big direction we're we're going in and have to address is the issue of reparations for a number of these historical wrongs, including the disparate land allocations that were made. And so I think we'll see that on the horizon in the years to come.
0: Are there any parting words you want to say to our listeners and to us and to yourself? Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) Thank you for that invitation. I guess to, to bring it back around is to encourage you to do law in love, do everything in love. Um, and, and I don't think that's being sort of overly mushy. I just think it means that you engage with other people by bringing the best of yourself to people, um, expecting that in others and working with others to move our our work and our world forward in a loving way, both in how we do it and the outcomes that we're seeking. And the last thing I would say is, and what that means today for you and particularly for, for law students at the time that you may be listening to this, is be gentle with yourself. It's not your job to change the world today. It's your job to take care of yourself today, to do something nurturing for yourself so that you have the energy, to give and connect with other people beyond that and to to just do a little bit each day to first do no harm, but to figure out a way of connecting to what's important and true to you. This has been wonderful
1: to to have this really good conversation and I think a lot of us need it right now. So so thank you so oh, much. Thank you Michelle for having me. This
2: was delightful. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks everyone for listening and tune in next time to check out more of our podcast.
0: If you want to follow us on social media, you can look up the Social Activist Law Students Association at Dalhousie on Facebook or Salsa.Schulick on Instagram. The Legal Activist is a production produced and edited by Alicia Landers. And special thanks to Mark Lewis,
1: Jordy Lansbury, and David Michaels for helping out with the technology. Bye. See ya. <laughs>